0: Hey, Corey. Joe here. Yeah, um... I knew about Abbott and Jersey, um... That they had some sort of correspondence, and then, uh, uh it's typical of yeah. falling out over politics. If I remember, one sec. Uh, little baby Mars pants getting into a daffodil. Uh, I'm gonna have to make this quick, but look. If you guys are gonna follow through with this podcast idea, I'd certainly look into Jersey Kaczynski. Uh, you don't get darker, stranger, uh... I hate this word, but in a sense, kinkier than Jersey Kaczynski.
1: Kaczynski? Hmm. My interest was piqued. Before starting this podcast, my dear friend, the poet and novelist Joseph Harms, was probably the only person I'd ever met who'd call himself a Kaczynski fan. And believe me, after selling books for the past 18 years in New York, Santorini, Greece, and here in Spain, I know plenty of readers. I myself had never opened one of his books, and all I really knew about the guy was that he was a Jewish Holocaust survivor from Poland who wrote a disturbing novel about his experience during the war, then wrote a number of other books that no one reads save being there occasionally because it was turned into a film starring Peter Sellers. And then at some point in the 80s he was accused of plagiarism and of not writing his own books, and eventually he killed himself. That's all I knew. So you'll imagine my surprise when, later that day, I received these messages from Joe.
0: Hey, Corey, Joe here. Sorry about that, man. Uh, Common flowers, household plants even can be quite poisonous. So, yeah, I had to get that from ours. But anyway, on to Jersey. uh, Look into the Manson murders. Uh, He was supposed to be there at the Tate residence. Um... Lost his bags supposedly. Uh, the airport did in New York City, and he stayed a day late. Uh, all right. There's that. On top of that, wrote a scene exceptionally. I mean, remarkably, like the Manson murders previous to the murders. Uh, third, when Polanski heard, he said, "It's Kaczynski. Kaczynski did it. Whether he manipulated Manson uh, or." Did it, uh, as partners with Manson, but at a distance. Nah, that was points, he's take. Okay, uh, more later. Hey, Corey, um, Joe here. Uh, look into costumes, prosthetics, um, even down to, like, fake wooden legs that go around like a leg. Um, fake noses, so on. Carry him around with him, uh, in his trunk, and... Don him and go into parties and ask people he knew he was close to what they thought of Jersey. Um,
1: seems small, though, when you think about it, what a freak. All right, more later. A freak indeed. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. The Kaczynski tales continued and got even more twisted.
0: Hey, Corey, Joe here. Looking to, um... Jersey, uh, hiding in walls. So here's the thing, um, at parties, he would scope out the host or hostess of his place. If it was the right kind of apartment, um, and he'd get in, well, he would. And then he'd he'd live in the person's uh, walls without food, without water, spying on him, Um, taking notes. uh, God knows for what, uh, his own perverted intel, um, much like, uh, do you remember that is such a good movie, uh, I think from the 80s, uh, with Gary Busey, I think, uh, Hider in the House, Jersey was Hider in the House. Hey, Corey, Joe here, this is a good one, um. driving one night after i think just like a couple's get together with uh, some famous race car driver and a lot of braggadocio a lot of like in quotes man talk and uh jersey uh in this vein gets in the wrong lane and drives toward a semi uh plain chicken and uh the race car driver of course cracks and is trying to pull the wheel but jersey won't let him and uh, the semi just flips flips right off the road, uh, rolls down, I think, into a ravine. I think it might have even exploded. Um, worth talking about. All right, see ya. Hey, Corey, Joe here. Um, another thing popped into mind, uh, Jersey's incredible sexual prowess, um, honed, uh, assiduously, uh, through breathing techniques, he could hold his breath for like 10 minutes and uh, some sort of weird heart control. But most importantly, through the use of a hard bristled toothbrush. All right, look it up.
1: There you have it, folks. The WhatsApp messages that started it all. How could we not follow through with a Criminal Writers podcast with a subject as sick as Kaczynski? The son of a bitch killed a truck driver. He burrowed inside walls. He might have even been responsible for the Manson murders. Where was the biopic, the HBO series? If half of what Harms was saying was true, we were sitting on absolute gold. So I wasted no time and rushed to the Strand to buy his biography. It's by James Park Sloan and artfully titled, Jersey Kaczynski, and holy shit, what a cover. It's Jersey's face, captured towards the end of his life when he was in his early to mid-fifties. Above his aquiline nose, set back behind a cascade of wrinkles and some gnarled crow's feet, are two of the saddest eyes imaginable. When I first saw this cover, I still hadn't read a word the man had written, yet one look into those eyes and he'd already won me over. But how to reconcile the sympathy those eyes inspired in me with all the horrible shit Joe said Jersey had done? Well, I'd have to read to find out.
2: That day, Corey also bought a different writer's biography. And when he came back to Spain, he gave it to me, claiming it was a gift. A thousand-page biography is already a pretty big imposition. But when it's about an author whose books I've never been even remotely interested in reading, fucking hell. It's not that I didn't enjoy the parts about his terrible behavior and his constant trolling of both conservatives and liberals, it's just that I had to read a thousand pages when I probably could have just googled his name and learned all I needed from this lovely little op-ed The Guardian published right after his death, titled Farewell to Norman Mailer, a sexist, homophobic reactionary who hated authority, homosexuality, women, and most certainly himself which then proceeded to call him, quote, a four-radical who used the taboo-breaking atmosphere of the 60s as cover for a career of lifelong self-promotion. In any case, halfway through Corey's gift, I realized that the reason why the author, J. Michael Lennon, was going so easy on what appeared to be a pretty bad guy, was that they were buddies. So, note to self and to our listeners. If you want to read all about the gory details and get all the hearsay, avoid biographies labeled authorized and stick to the ones that get dismissed by the book's subject. Or you'll end up like me, painfully going... Well, you suffered so that the people don't have to. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I'm Santiago Lemoine, a bookseller, failing writer, and the guy who read too many books on and by Norman Mailer so that you don't have to. And I'm Corey Eastwood, a bookseller, failing writer, and the guy who read too many books
1: on and by Jerzy Kaczynski, so that you'll be inspired to read a few of them as well. This is episode three of season one of Penknife, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it.
2: If you listen to the first two episodes of this podcast, and if you haven't, we suggest you do, you learn about Abbott's life behind bars and his brief tragic sojourn into the outside world. The episodes that remain will focus largely on the lives and literature of Abbott's most famous pen pals, Jersey Kuzinski and Norman Mailer. The stories you'll hear about these men are hilarious, infuriating and, we think you'll agree, ultimately tragic. They are stories of hubris, of men who set their sights high and did everything they could, including using and abusing others, to get there. And when they did, they both stumbled, plagued by literary controversies and off-the-page scandals. One was able to regain his footing, one was not. Their lives, just like Jack Henry Abbott's, are stories of the American dream. And like most American dream stories, they involve plenty of violence.
1: In March and April of 2020, Valencia was in full lockdown. I had no internet and would occasionally sneak the four blocks from my flat to our bookshop in order to check my email, read the bad news, and download an occasional movie. Going anywhere besides the closest grocery store or pharmacy was illegal, and multiple times I was stopped by police and nearly ticketed. So I spent a lot of time, way too much time, alone in my apartment with the collected works of Jersey Kaczynski. And I'm... Very sorry to say this, but my findings prove that most of what Harms told me in those voicemails was bullshit. But before you get too upset and switch the dial to yet another podcast about the Zodiac Killer, let me say that while Harms has an incredibly sick and twisted imagination, nothing that he told me was complete fabrication. Every claim had its origin in reality, and his most common error was confusing Kaczynski's fiction for his life. For instance, when Harm said that Kaczynski burrowed into walls to spy on people, he was really remembering Kaczynski's character Tardin in his novel Cockpit, who commits said offense to spy on a girlfriend. Kaczynski himself just liked to hide in sofas, on windowsills, and in the back seats of cars. He especially loved to tuck his exceptionally slim figure behind his bookshelf, as a sort of parlor trick whenever he had guests. No one could ever find him because no one could believe that an adult human body could be capable of fitting into such a small space. Joe claimed that Jersey murdered someone by driving them off the road, but no, he was just showing off behind the wheel one day, favorite pastime of his, and ran some guy into a ditch. There's no mention of the other driver dying, and I think that's something we would have heard about if true. And Manson? Well, we'll get to Manson later. But that bit about his sexual prowess and strange methods for enhancing it, that's more or less all true, and for better or for worse, we'll get to that as well. What Harms did in misremembering, or perhaps deliberately giving me false leads, was probably exactly what Jersey would have wanted. Or at least, it's exactly what he did himself. Everything Kaczynski said about his own life and wrote in his novels was basically a hybrid of fact and fiction. No one, not even Park Sloan, Kaczynski's biographer, was able to fully parse the two. And the truth is that Kaczynski himself often seemed not to know or not to care where fact left off and fantasy began. This is all to say that though I've read as much as I could on Kaczynski, everything that I or anyone else says about his life should be taken with a few heaping tablespoons of salt. Jersey Kaczynski told lies, and then he retold lies, and then he revised his lies and told them again. He was a master of disguise, often donning elaborate costume, sometimes pretending he was mute or deaf, blind or castrated. He was known to deliberately misdate letters and book inscriptions, and to lie about inconsequential matters. Why? Perhaps just to fuck with people and see how they'd react perhaps to obscure his reality and lead those who might try to understand him astray. Perhaps, because he never showed the outside world the real jersey, the identity he presented was always somewhat of a performance, a costume to put on or discard at will. In essence, he lived his entire life like a cunning child in hiding during the Holocaust. Or, less generously, like a fugitive on the lam.
2: Norman Mailer, the great American novelist. Norman Mailer, the founder of new journalism. Norman Mailer, the criminal, the politician, the enemy of feminism and the savior of Jack Henry Abbott. Norman Mailer. The voice of a generation, the voice of two generations and a voice that pretty much nobody reads anymore. The story of Norman Mailer is the story of a talent both nurtured and sabotaged by a massive debilitating ego. It's the story of an insecure man who may have been a closeted bisexual, and the story of the tough guy persona he created for himself and struggled to live up to. Norman Mailer may never have written the great American novel, but his life was, in many ways, a quintessentially American story. Born in 1923 to a middle-class family, Norman Kingsley Mailer grew up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. His father was a slickly dressed South African with a fake British accent and a weakness for poker, ponies, and prostitutes. His mother ran a nursing agency, but according to Norman, her life's main work was nurturing her son's genius. By age seven, she'd already decided that he was destined for greatness and encouraged him to start writing stories. He was a self-described physical coward, and perhaps that's why, from an early age, he idealized traditionally match activities. One of his first creations was a three-page how-to booklet called Boxing Lessons. While young Norman delighted Mummy, daddy was constantly in and out of trouble with bookies, loan sharks and the law. He ran up debts he couldn't afford to pay, signed bad checks and stole from his boss. A drunk of the lecherous variety he once grabbed Norman's second wife's ass, and an outlaw of sorts, Norman was definitely his father's son. From his mother, he was gifted a massive ego, and the belief that if his life were anything less than better than everyone else's, it would be a failure.
1: So, as we've said, Harms' claims, as well as Jersey's stories about himself, were all more or less bullshit. But the truth or as close as we can approximate in the strange case of Mr. Jersey Kaczynski is in some ways even more bizarre. He was born Yusef Lewinkov to Jewish parents in Łódź, Poland in 1933. Financially, the family was comfortable and culturally, they occupied an equally comfortable place amongst Łódź's Jewish intelligentsia. His father worked in the textile industry and his mother tended the house. Nothing wrong with either of those lives, but words like comfortable, normal or middle class Were not words Jersey ever wanted attached to him. Thus, in his tellings, his father became a linguistic scholar who spoke eight languages and his mother a great concert pianist. Regardless, what the Levinkovs did during Yusef's early years mattered very little compared to what happened next. In late 1939, shortly after the Nazis invaded Poland, The Levinkovs left Łódź and headed east to the village of Sandomierz. There, they lived openly amongst other Jews for over two years until the Wanasi Conference in January 1942 made clear that the so-called final solution would be the mass extermination of the Jews. The family fled and were aided by an underground railroad helping Jews to escape from Sandomierz. This support network led them to a small village called Dobrova Zhezheshka where they lived in various degrees of hiding, a mix of isolation and integration for the remainder of the war. Already in Sandomierz, the young Yusuf had been given a cross to wear around his neck and one to bear in the form of hiding his ethnicity and religion. He was taught the Lord's Prayer, forbidden to play with other Jews, and instructed to always, at any cost, hide his penis for what it could reveal about his identity. And of course, once the other village boys, who already judged the newcomer with his dark-Semitic looks, found out he was hiding it from them, they made it their mission to expose him. When I was growing up, one of the many cruel things kids used to do to each other was something we called pantsing, a surprise attack in the school hallway in which the victim's pants were yanked down. Yo-ho-ho, <laughs> Cory just got pantsed, ha-ha! <laughs> Red-faced and humiliated, Corey would then hurry to pull them back up while everyone else pointed and laughed. It makes me shudder to remember how much I feared pantsing. And yet, think about it. In Jersey's case, the threat meant not only humiliation, but the real possibility of death, and the death of his entire family. It was during this time that his parents changed his first name to Jurek, a.k.a. Yershe, or, as he would be known in the U.S., Jersey and his last name to the very common Polish surname, Kaczynski. He took the new name to heart and would never again be Yusef Levinkov. Pretending to be someone you're not is something we can probably all identify with, particularly in adolescence. And if you can't, that's probably because you're supremely self-assured, making you either A, a psychopath, or B, an insufferable prick. As we'll see, even the great Norman Mailer did his fair share of fronting. But Jersey's pretense was absolute next level. At seven years old, he was already learning how to completely obscure some of the most important aspects of his identity. It was a game of make-believe, in which, again, the stakes were truly life or death. In order to fully inhabit the role of the Gentile, he needed to repudiate potential friendships with Jewish children, and in order to minimize the risk of exposure for his family, his permission to socialize with the non-Jewish kids was kept to the bare minimum. Thus, he stopped thinking of himself as a Jew, and despite his family's efforts at integration, he clearly wasn't a Gentile either. So he spent a lot of time on the outside looking in, watching, fantasizing. The identity conflict and trauma he experienced, along with the survival skills he adopted as a child, had profound impacts on both the rest of his life and on his writing.
2: If watching was Kuzinski's favorite thing, Mailer was obsessed with the exact opposite. He wanted to be seen. The problem was that he'd enrolled in Harvard to study aeronautical engineering, and while airplane engineers can make a ton of money, they seldom appear on TV, marry famous actresses or get books written about them. And that was no good for Norman, whose plan was to get famous or die trying. And so he decided to take some creative writing lessons.
1: Which these days, kids, is the exact opposite thing you should do if
2: you want to get rich and famous. (laughs) Exactly. The first lesson for any creative writing student is simple. To write, you must read. Dos Passos, Thomas Wolfe, Faulkner, and of course Hemingway were among Mailer's favorites. As were D.H. Lawrence and Henry Miller, who wrote about what very well might have been his life's greatest passion. Sex. Sex. Mailer entered Harvard a virgin obsessed with getting rid of that label as soon as possible. Mostly, though, he just fantasized and put those fantasies to paper in the form of his earliest short stories, such as "Lovebirds," an autobiographical tale of two 17-year-olds who travel to brothels to lose their virginity, but end up losing their nerve instead. And He was her man, about a guy who murders his adulterous wife and her lover, before committing suicide. Despite all the writing about fucking, Mailer wasn't making much progress, until the glorious day when someone let him stick a hand down her pants. Afterwards, when he got back to his room, he forced his fingers under his roommate's nostrils and, ever the poet, exclaimed, WITH THAT! It's a stupid story about a stupid young man, but illustrates the way he, and most men frankly, viewed sex as conquest. Things didn't necessarily improve though. Later in life he would literally refer to his penis as quote the retaliator and to one of his character's penises as quote the avenger. Also his desire to immediately share the sexual experience with another male which again is pretty much something all boys do, might hint at a controversial aspect of mailer's story. Many claimed that he was bisexual, that he liked to sleep with gay men as long as there was a woman present so that it could be chalked up as a threesome, and that he was obsessed with asking his partners about the sexual prowess of the other men they slept with. If in fact he was bisexual, it was his greatest secret, a secret he would do anything to maintain. From continually spouting homophobic nonsense to championing himself as the greatest lover his female partners ever had, Norman Mailer made an art out of performing toxic masculinity. Anyhow, He eventually managed to lose his virginity, and with that weight now off his shoulders, something else would capture his attention, something very, very big that was blowing up across the Atlantic.
1: After the war, Jersey's family was part of a forced population exchange between Poland and the Soviet Union, that landed them in the city of Lvov, which is today part of western Ukraine. His father parlayed his support for the Polish Workers' Party and the Red Army into a well-compensated job as a manager of a local company. And again, Jersey resumed the life of a child of relative privilege. Two years later, another resettlement plan allowed the Kaczynskys to return to Wuj, where the family was set up in a nice villa with a live-in servant. There, Jersey went to high school and college and cultivated his two main passions, photography and, yep, that again, sex. Throughout his late adolescence and early 20s, he was rarely seen without a camera around his neck. He was a portraitist, and his favorite subject was women, particularly the beautiful, scantily clad variety. His camera was not only the tool he required to make art, it doubled nicely as a prop to lure his subjects into bed. Yes, our jersey was one of those Baby, you're absolutely gorgeous, you should be a model and I'm going to make you one kind of super creeps. A big fan of the casting couch, he once ran an ad in a local newspaper that read Young Girls Wanted for Film Polski and listed his address as the tryout location. Friends noted that he had remarkable powers of seduction, that he could literally pick up a woman between tram stops, and that he was always willing to spin the most outlandish lie or inhabit a completely different persona to get a woman to sleep with him that many of them had boyfriends or husbands was rarely an issue for Kaczynski, save the one time he photographed and seduced a policeman's wife. The cop pulled the gun on him, but Jersey was able to duck out the window and flee. He managed to save the naked photos of the woman, but not his trousers, as he shot himself in the escape. And as our friend Joe was so eager to point out, (laughs) One cannot talk about Jersey Kaczynski as a sexual being without talking about his extraordinary penis that was said to achieve erection instantly and maintain it indefinitely. A friend of his at the time, Thaddeus Kraus, said he once saw Jersey rub his penis, both the sides and over the tip, with a hard bristled toothbrush in order to show how pain resistant and superhuman the member was. Kraus saw it in action often, because Jersey had an affinity for bringing a male partner with him to sleep with a woman. This was not, as Kaczynski assured Krause, because he was homosexual, but rather because it allowed him to do his
2: favorite thing. Watch. By the end of the summer of 1941, while Mailer was getting serious about his writing, he met the woman who would later become the first of his six wives, Beatrice Silverman. Like most teenage couples, They spent most of their time together shagging. She was a lot more experienced in bed than he was, and this fact tortured Mailer. The idea that someone else could screw or write better than him was absolutely terrifying. Both in bed and on the page, he had to be number one. But outside the bedroom, all hell was breaking loose. Mailer pondered. While worthy young
1: men were wondering where they could be of aid to the war effort, and practical young men were deciding which branch of the service was the surest for landing a safe commission. I was worrying darkly whether it would be more likely that a great war novel would be written about Europe or the Pacific.
2: This is classic Mailer. He continually pursued experience just to write about it. And what better way to pen the great war novel than to first pull the trigger of a bolt-action M1? If killing or being killed was what it might take, then so be it. Norman Mailer saw life as a means to literature, and literature as his means to fame.
3: All right, we're skipping the war for now and taking a trip to 1954 Vooch, cause fuck it, why not? I booked us a room downtown at the Hotel Savoy, where the great Joseph Roth stayed while composing his first novel, making the hotel both the book's subject and title. We're up on the sixth floor among the poor live-in residents. The street sweepers and strippers. The actors who aren't acting. The writers who aren't writing, you know the type. Needless to say, it's noisy. And I don't know about you, but last night I couldn't sleep for shit. The cabaret singer down the hall was carrying on until dawn with what seemed like half her audience. And the big guy next door turns into a rhino after dark. Anyway, it's time for coffee. And the place to be is only two blocks away. The Honoratka Cafe. Just a few years old, but already the bohemian crowd, especially the students and faculty from the film school, have marked it their own. No booze, no music, no COVID, just cranberry juice, apple pie, cheesecake, and plenty of philosophizing. What more could you want? Well, coffee, but they've got that too. I'll take a double espresso, and you? Everybody who's anybody in the Butch art world is here. If it weren't for all the cigarette smoke, we'd actually be able to see them. I mean, look over there. It's Andrzej Wajda, the man who'll become a towering figure in Polish cinema, directing such brilliant films as Ashes and Diamonds and The Promised Land. He's holding court talking about his first feature film, A Generation, and a bunch of bespectacled students are eating up his every word. He's mostly addressing the attractive women in the group, but one little fella seems to be getting his attention more than most. It's one of his actors, A puny 21-year-old who's more than holding his own with Vidal on the subject of directing. No, it's not Jersey, but Roman Polanski. And because it's him, we use our newfound ability to speak Polish, to sit and listen. But they're talking about cameras and angles, and frankly, that shit is boring. Plus, I'm eager to try the apple pie, so let's go order a slice. Check out that goofball over there by the bar in the three-piece suit. The scrawny one with the Sean Bush of curly hair wobbling above his brow as he fiddles with the camera he's got strapped around his neck like a badge of honour. Anyway, come and sit down and enjoy this pie. Yeah, please, have some. It's not too sweet, you'll like it. Oh God, look who just sat down next to us, the goofball with the camera. And look who's coming our way, Polanski. You think he's going to talk to us? No. He just walks up to the kid with the camera and, without provocation, dumps a full cup of tea on his lap. The kid jumps up, squealing. Why'd you do that? Why? The poor guy's mortified as he tries to shake the tea off his suit. Polanski pauses, studying him as the crowd of onlookers grows. Because I wanted to figure out how someone as well organised as you would react.
1: At this stage, Polanski was already somebody, while the guy with the wet pants, yeah, you guessed it, Jersey Kaczynski, was just a kid with a camera. But even back then, Kaczynski was highly ambitious and also well aware of how the art world's pecking order works. So he let the incident slide. Years later, the two men would be connected by that horrible night on Cielo Drive. Yes, there is a link between Kaczynski and the Manson murders. But no, Jersey was, contrary to Harms' claims, in no way responsible for them. The truth is, he didn't know Manson, and the novel Blind Date, which contains the very Manson-like scene, was written eight years after the murders. His connection to the crime is tenuous at best. Kaczynski claimed that he was supposed to be there the night of the murders, but because of lost luggage on a flight back from Europe, he missed the flight that would have put him in LA that day. But some claim that he wasn't even invited that night and that he concocted the story to put himself closer to such a historically important event. Regardless, though Kaczynski didn't murder Polanski's wife and friends, the two will always be connected by being probably the two most famous artists and the two most scandalized lives to emerge from Woods in the 20th century. And emerge, Kaczynski did. There are many zany, apocryphal stories, most of them propagated by Kaczynski himself, about how in 1957, at the age of 24, he made it out of Poland and into the U.S. His defection was fictionalized in a number of his novels, where the young Jersey stand-in employs the cunning of a secret agent and criminal mastermind to forge documents and blackmail and seduce bureaucrats. Think, a Polish James Bond meets Dr. No. Speculation that he was working for the CIA, which was occasionally encouraged by Kaczynski himself, is almost entirely unfounded. The facts seem to point to a very simple, significantly less sexy answer. He weighed through the massive amounts of communist bureaucracy, lied and cheated whenever necessary, got professors to write letters for him and forged them when he couldn't, before finally gaining acceptance to Columbia University and the permission he needed to leave the country. He then borrowed some money and bought himself a one-way ticket to JFK. Jerzy Kaczynski would not return to Poland for over 30 years. Big thanks to Joseph Harms, whose sick and twisted imagination can be enjoyed in all its splendor in classic novels such as Ball and Kant, and his brand new book of poetry,
2: Noose, which is available at most of my bookstores. And make sure to join us in episode 4 for stories of Norman Mailer making pork and beans and Jerzy Kuczynski making babies. Penknife is created, written and produced by Corey Eastwood and Santiago Lemoine. Ramona Stout is our editor and narrator. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. The sound design, the music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sánchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. Our website, penknifepodcast.com, was built by Flor Lopez. And a very special thanks to Mr. Rico Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. Season 1 of Penknife took us two years to make. We're eager to get started on Season 2, and trust me, we've got some really good stories about writers behaving badly. But to do so, we need your help. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, and want Season 2 to become a reality, please consider heading over to patreon.com penknife to support us. A cup of coffee or two a month would go a long way. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review Penknife on whatever app or platform you're using. And most importantly, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend about us. And thank you for listening.
0: Show here, so I looked into it, uh, and it is or was Busey, uh, Gary Busey. Great actor, beautiful man, uh, top notch movie. I uh, thought I'd let you know.